to say that I love the new year because there's always a sense of excitement that kind of comes with it and electricity, something new on the horizon and potential for change and maybe doing things differently this new year. But there's also, I, th- I feel like I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the new year. And I think it's typified really well with the New Year's Eve, the ball drop at New York. See, when I first heard this, I had never seen it before. They said they drop a ball at midnight. I was like, how big is this ball? They're like, like you know, like really big. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I'm imagining, like, it's filled with explosives, and at midnight, it detonates fireworks everywhere, shards of glass raining down on people. So when I first saw it, I was like, this is it? Like, you kept me awake till midnight to watch this? Like, the lights just turned off. Like, that was really lame. And, and then I go into the new year, and I try and keep my resolutions, and I do great for about two weeks, and then kind of just taper off, and I go back to the way things originally were. And I think that experience is kind of common for us, is that there's this excitement about having these new dreams and hopes and desires and expectations, and then reality kind of sets in. My wife, Kenzie, and I just experienced this this Christmas. We got married three months ago, so it was our first Christmas together. And not only was it our first Christmas together, it was our first Christmas together alone and in Southern California. So there's a lot of new things happening at once. So we said we're doing Christmas right this year. And the most important part of this Christmas celebration is going to be our tree. It's going to be beautiful. So we come back from Thanksgiving weekend, and we... Uh, throw in our snow clothes, we grab an axe, and we head down to the local Walmart to get our Christmas tree. And actually, we wore flip-flops and sandals, because, or shorts, because it was 85 degrees outside. Welcome to Christmas in Southern California. So we go to Walmart, and I'm an Eagle Scout, so I go and get the rope to secure it to our uh, Honda Civic. And she goes and finds the tree. And I kid you not, she found the best tree in the entire $30 section. I mean, it was a great tree for a great price. And so we buy the tree, and Kenzie goes and gets the car. And she drives it out front. Now, I don't know if you know this, but within 50 yards of Walmart, anywhere is considered a loading zone. So what was the main lane of traffic for us was now this loading zone. So we throw the tree on top, roll the windows down, and start tying the, the tree to the car. And then it was then that as we finished tying it, because I'm an Eagle Scout, I tie perfect knots. It's not going anywhere. I realized that we've actually now tied the doors shut to the car. <laughs> And the only way into the car is through the window. So here we are blocking traffic in Walmart. We're climbing into our car through the windows. And because I'm an Eagle Scout, I had the sense to climb in feet first, not head first. Uh, And then to top it all off, we bring the tree home. And within two days, I forget to water it. So by Christmas Day, it's not a Christmas tree. It's a giant log with syringe needles covering it. And we were afraid to keep our lights on for more than 10 minutes for fear it might ignite. So what we had dreamed would be this magical Christmas tree turned out to be a lot different. And I think that experience, though it's a silly example, is really common for all of us, is that we have these hopes, these dreams, and then reality. And oftentimes reality is what wins, and so we're left picking up the shattered fragments of our dreams. And... Maybe you've experienced this as well. Maybe you thought that you'd be getting a new job, but in fact, instead of getting a new job, you lose your job. Or you had these dreams for what your child would be like, only to see them walk down a different path. Or maybe you had these dreams that when you got married, you'd be debt-free and it'd be full of joy, but now you just fight all the time and you're just struggling to pay the bills each week. 
Or maybe there were sins of your youth like lust, greed, or maybe even pornography or an eating disorder that you were afraid wouldn't carry on into your adult life, but now it's still resurfacing. There's moments in life where we have to deal with reality, deal with failure, because at those moments when life hits us in the face, it feels like we've utterly failed. And I don't think we're really good with dealing with failure. Often what we do is we say, well, you have to fail to succeed. So we just frame our failure in light of our successes and see failure as this stepping block to get to a lifetime of success. And we never really deal with it. We just say you have to go through it to get to the good life. So failure is just a one-time occurrence rather than something that happens over and over again. So we continually deal with disappointment. And our expectations just get blown out of the water sometimes, and we get lost. And it's that, that that we just feel broken. Now, as we look at the Bible, uh, I really want to look at the person of Peter, because I think as we look at Peter, we can really learn how to understand how to deal with failure. So if you open your Bibles up to John 21, uh, verse 1, or it'll be on the screen behind me, and today we're really going to get a first-hand eyewitness perspective of what's going on. Really going to get into the story, get into Peter's mind, get into Jesus' mind, and see what's happening. So this is John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. So, so Jesus has risen from the dead. Life is now utterly different because of that moment. And here we're going to see this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples as he's been raised from the dead. Now the question is, who are these disciples that he's interacting with? Verse 2. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. So Simon Peter is the one who's mentioned first, and he's the one we're really going to focus on. And to understand Peter, we got to know that Peter is a guy who in one moment will totally understand and totally fail. For instance, when Jesus asked the disciples about his identity, Peter steps up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are him who's been prophesied about. And Jesus is like, bingo, gold star for Peter. And then Jesus says, and and since I'm this Messiah figure, I'm actually going to suffer and die at the hands of the Roman establishment. And for Peter, that doesn't make sense. He thinks actually this Messiah figure is going to conquer Rome. And so he says, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. The only other time Jesus refers to someone as Satan is when he's talking with Satan. And so in this one moment, Peter gets it. And fails miserably. And the most famous of Peter's failures happens in Mark. It's actually recorded in all four Gospels, but we're going to look at Mark. Mark 14, verse 29. See, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to die. And in fact, all of them will desert him. And Peter pipes up and says, Even though all become deserters, I will not And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this day, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. And then just hours later, while Peter was below in the courtyard, this is verse 66, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know this man that you're talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So we've got to keep this story on the forefront of our minds because this is in the forefront of Peter's mind and in Jesus' mind. I mean, this has just happened just a few days before when Jesus was crucified. So if we return to John, John 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Peter, before he was called by Jesus, was a fisherman. And as a fisherman, if you're hungry and you want to get some food, you're going to go fishing because it's your means of, of providing for yourself. But I also think there's something else going on here in that Peter is returning to his former life. You see, I imagine that Peter is so burdened down with the guilt of denying Jesus that he can't handle the thought of returning back to being a disciple. So he returns to that which he knows, which is being a fisherman. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly what's going on here, but we begin to see a sense of, of John painting this picture of Peter kind of running away. The cool thing is Jesus shows up and chases after him. Verse 4. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Okay, this story's always seemed a little ridiculous to me. That these guys are fishing all night. They're, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're hungry. And this random stranger shows up on the shore and says, Hey, guys, try the right side of the boat. Of course, we've only been on the left side. Why did we think of trying the right side? That's a ridiculous suggestion. I think the fish are like, guys, they're only on the left side. Let's stick to the right side. But the ridiculous thing is that they throw it on the right side and there's a miraculous catch of fish so much that they can't even haul the net in. I mean, that's crazy. But the even crazier part is this isn't the first time that this has happened. If we go to Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus performed this very same miracle when he first called the disciples. Luke 5, verse 1. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. 
Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. And so here we see Jesus perform the very same miracle that he performed when he first called the disciples. So we see Peter running back to his former occupation. Jesus coming to where he's at and calling him once again like he did the first time. And this miracle sparks the disciples' memory. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. So once Peter realizes, once his memory snaps into place, and he's like, this can only be Jesus. He just throws caution to the wind, dives into the water, and swims after Jesus. I love Peter's just boldness, that he just goes for it. It's a beautiful picture of faith. And and we'll look at that a little bit more. Verse 9. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, so these guys come ashore, and I love this. They just get to have breakfast with Jesus. That's so awesome. They come out after a night of fishing and just share a meal with Jesus. And I think it's interesting, this is just a little side note, that the disciples are afraid to ask him who he is, but they know it's him. And so we don't know what Jesus looked like when he was resurrected from the dead. We don't even know what he looks like now. But we know that there's something different about him. That in him conquering the grave, he looks different. And I'm sure it's probably pretty awesome. So we look forward to a day when we get to see Jesus and we know that when we see him, we'll recognize him and it'll be beautiful. That's a side note though, because now we get to the, to the main part of this passage. You know, Jesus has eaten breakfast with them and now in a sense he's going to address the elephant on the beach. And that's Peter's denial. And so verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we need to read this verse carefully because if you notice, it says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. So it it refers to him as Peter, but then Jesus addresses him as Simon, son of John. Now, if we go to the beginning of John, uh, chapter 1, verse 42, we see Jesus have this interaction with uh, Simon. Verse 42, he, Andrew, who was Simon's brother, brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So Simon, before he met Jesus, was known as Simon, son of John. And yet when he meets Jesus, Jesus gives him a new identity and says, You are now Simon Peter. And yet Jesus, in talking with him, does not refer to him by the name he's given him, 
but refers to him by the name with which he had before he called him. So we see Jesus interacting with Peter as if he was before a disciple. All these puzzle pieces are coming together. Peter returns to his former occupation. Jesus comes to him, and Jesus talks to him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, and the these can have two things depending on the context. The first is fish, in that they have these fish right there, and Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than these fish? I mean, here I am, I've risen from the grave. And you've returned to your former occupation. Do you love me more than these? Am I truly your highest devotion or are these fish your calling? Do you love me more than these? Or Jesus could also be saying, do you love me more than these disciples? Because if we remember, Peter's the one who says, even though all these other disciples desert you, I'm not going to desert you, Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. And yet Peter denied him three times. And so Jesus, in a sense, could be saying, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples? Because you claimed that you loved me more than them. And yet you denied me three times, just as I said you would. Do you love me more than these disciples? And I'm sure at this moment, Peter is so humbled by this question. Look at his response. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You see, Peter doesn't try to compare himself to the other disciples. He just trusts in the knowledge of Jesus and says, Jesus, you know that I love you. You know I do. I know I failed, but you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I love this interaction because Jesus first initially interacts with Peter as if he weren't a disciple, but then gives him the calling of a disciple. He says, feed my sheep, Peter. Tend my lambs. Feed my flock. Peter, follow me. He gives him the same two words that he spoke when he first called him. Follow me. Yes, Peter failed, but Jesus' grace is greater still than Peter's failure. And he comes to him, and he, and he comes to him, he confronts him, and he loves him. He says, Peter, I know you've messed up, but I want you to follow me. Do not forsake your calling to be my disciple. I love this story. And, and as we think about failure, if we truly want to get off to a fresh start, we've got to deal with this failure. And looking at Peter, we can learn how to deal with failure. First, in the midst of failure, Jesus comes to us. You see, Peter failed miserably, but Jesus doesn't just toss him aside and go, all right, well, Peter's out of the picture. Where's John? Let's find him. You know, he's like, he comes to him, he comes to the beach and does the same miraculous catch of fish that he performed when he first called Peter. He shares a meal with him. 
And so it is with us that when in the midst of our own failure, Jesus comes to us. I mean, this is an elementary truth, but it's something that we need to have hammered into our heads. That when you lose your job, Jesus is there. When your marriage is falling apart or you're fighting, Jesus is there in the midst of it. When you have no money to pay the bills, Jesus is there at every moment of every day of every hour of your life. Jesus is present, and we cannot forget that fact. In the midst of whatever we're going through, especially failure, Jesus is present. And it's beautiful. But Jesus doesn't just come to us. He confronts us. He comes to us in the midst of our failure, but then confronts us and says, Do you love me more than these things? Am I your highest calling? Or do you love your job more than me? Do you love your family more than me? Do you love the things of this world more than me? See, Jesus has to ask us that question because it's loving for him to do that. Because he is our highest calling. He is the greatest thing for us. So for him to let us just do what we want to do and not confront us in that is not love. For him to come to us and say, do you love me? is the highest act of love. Jesus confronts us in the midst of our failure, but even more than all of this, in the midst of failure, Jesus loves us. And and this is not an in spite of type of thing. See, sometimes we think Jesus loves us in spite of our failure. And so what we do is we fragment ourselves and we have this good part, the part that is really fun to be around, the part that's hilarious, that does all the right things, that that does really well at our job. And then we've got this part of us that isn't that great, that's kind of annoying or obnoxious and messes up and isn't really fun to be around, has a lot of failure here. So we say, well, God loves me because of this part, but he kind of just ignores that part over there. He ignores the part that sins. But the truth is, when I sin, I am the one who sins. It's not like the spirit comes and takes over my body and then leaves me afterwards. When I fail, I fail. I'm a whole person. And so it is with all of us. Everything that we do, we do. And it's Jesus who loves me. And he loves you. Not this good part of you that you've created to make yourself lovable. He loves this part. He loves all of us. Guys, this is the essence of the gospel. And that God who created the heavens by just speaking, let there be light. The God who took a ball of dust and fashioned it into man and breathed his spirit into him. This is the God who said, I just want to enjoy relationship with you for eternity. Uninhibited, unobstructed, joyful, blissful relationship with us. And then we, in the line of Adam and Eve and them eating the forbidden fruit, have failed that relationship. We've committed an act of treason against God. We've turned our backs on him and run away from him, and, and we just, we failed God. And so we sense that things are wrong. We know this world is not right. I don't feel like I need to argue that point with you. I don't need to say that because in the dead of night when we lie with our own thoughts, we ourselves know that we're not good enough. We're not what we ought to be. We know our own hearts. 
We see relationships are fractured. Our relationship with God isn't what it's supposed to be. And so we sense that things are wrong, and we try and fashion this picture-perfect image as if this is what's going to make things right. But the truth is that that's missing the gospel. The gospel is that God loves you because you're a failure, because you're not good enough. That's the beauty of it is that God loves us not because we're good or not in that bit because we're bad. We mess up. And so we need to embrace the fact that we fail because we are loved as failures. Not because we're perfect, because we're not. And it's in that moment that when we fail, that we're truly ourselves. Because all too often we're crafting this image. And when it falls apart and when we mess up, we're left with ourselves. And in that moment when we're truly ourself, truly ourself, we're loved in that moment. And that's scary for a lot of us because we know our own selves. We don't love ourselves oftentimes. And so we're not sure if we'll be loved in that vulnerability, in that brokenness. And so we run. I think we're such busy people because we're so afraid of sitting with our failure at times or our wrongness. We're not sure if we'll be loved in that, so we just keep running and running and moving and running further and further away from God. People, we just need to embrace that we mess up. And embrace even greater than that is that grace is greater than our failures. That God's love surpasses that and is present in the midst of that. Parents, I want to speak to you for a moment because in, in, in working with students, I, I'm seeing this epidemic in that parents, some of you are unable to deal with your own failure. And so you have now placed a load of expectation on your child that they cannot fulfill. And so some of our kids are so driven by success, so crippled by the fear of failing that they cannot handle getting a B on their test. That they're somehow thinking that their self-worth or your love of them is wrapped up in what they do. Put a bad report card on the refrigerator so they know that your love for them is not dependent upon what they do, but as their status as your child. Parents, you model for your children how to deal with failure. And if you don't, they will learn from their culture. And our Orange County culture has no idea how to deal with failure. It's not a part of our vocabulary. Parents... Love your children in their failure. Let them know that it's okay to mess up. It's a sign of their humanness. It's okay. Husbands and wives, love each other in your failure. You both know the other person's a failure. Love them. See, God has given us marriage to reflect himself to the world. And it pains me to see so often that marriage has just become places where we exist. Just roommates living together. And we're not people who share our hearts with each other. The most intimate aspects of ourself. We'll share our bodies, but we won't share our hearts. Husbands, love your wives. They are God's gift to you. Wives, love your husbands. They are God's gift to you. See, our inability to deal with our failure fractures our relationship. But when we accept that we fail, we're able to enter into relationship and things are restored and we're transformed. You see, Peter was transformed by Jesus. This interaction with Jesus utterly changed his life. 
We don't see Peter ever returning to go fishing again. You see, we only see Peter proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. But Peter is transformed because he runs to Jesus. The moment he finds out it's Jesus, he jumps out of that boat and swims to him. So the question for us is, do we run to Jesus in the midst of failure? Do we jump towards him? That, that's what's going to change us. is not when we run from God, but when we run to him. Because when we run to him, we find his love. And we're loved as failures. And that transforms our heart and we're able to live with freedom. Sometimes I think we're afraid to go to God because we feel like we've failed God. Or we've somehow thrown off his plan. And I just want to say that to think that we have so much power to throw off God's plan is ludicrous. It only encourages this inflated view of the self that I am so powerful that I can change the cosmos. God is going to do what God's going to do. His love, his story is greater than your failures. So run to him, not away from him. You're not going to mess him up. He's God. The band is going to come up and lead us in a song. Uh, and I, I just want to give us a moment of reflection. Because failure is not something we like to sit with. It's great. Move on. Um, many of you have noticed that there's no fill-ins. For some of you, that might have been a little nerve-wracking. Um, but there was a reason in that. Uh, I wanted to give you space to reflect on maybe failures of your own. To write those down. And then to let yourself be loved in that. So as they play this song, I, I just pray that you would let them sing this over you. That you would let yourself be loved by God as you reflect on failures of your own.
my prayer is that um, just if you got to experience God's love in this moment, that it would uh, carry on into the rest of today, the rest of this week, and um, the month, the year, next few years. I also want to just give you one more challenge in that God often gives us each other to be expressions of his love so that we could show his love to one another. So if you've taken that time to reflect on your own failures, I want to challenge you to go home and share that with your family, with friends. Sit around the dinner table. Parents, share your failures with your kids. And let yourself be loved by one another. Be open and honest and vulnerable. Because as we open ourselves up to each other and let ourselves be loved by one another, it's then that transformation takes place. And it's then that we truly get off to a fresh start. Let me pray. Father, your love is so big. God, I just love that song that if we were to fill the oceans with ink and try to write your love forever, it would blot out the sky. We would drain the ocean of the ink. God, you are so good, so immeasurably big, beyond our understanding. So God, would you just allow us to touch the tip of the iceberg of your love? Just a drop of that. God will change us. I pray that what you've spoken to us today would remain on our hearts, God, that you continue to feed us. That you would just let your love hover over us like a cloud. God, like you led the Israelites by a cloud, would you lead us a cloud of your love? Spirit, I just pray over all of us today. Just move in our hearts. Help us transform. We trust you with it. We know that it's in your hands. God, you are good. Just open our eyes and our hearts to see that and just let us know your love at every moment of every day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.